Welcome to the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast, the show dedicated to bring you the news from the oil patch deep in the heart of Texas, with your host, Ryan Ray and Josh Shelton. We're back with the Texas Oil & Gas Podcast. This is episode 133. 133, I'm your host, Josh Shelton, my friend and co-host, Ryan Ray. Ryan, it's been a great week of reviews, man. We've gotten one good review after another. Nate is going in the lake, and uh, we need to get more good reviews. One and one and one and one. Eighteen more, to be specific. No, I don't. Yes, I, we, yes, we do. Good. Yes, no, we're not. We're good. good. We're not good yet. Not as all we're well. We're so good. We've ordered Nathan Phelps 2020 Polar Plunge stickers. They are in my hands. I'll put a picture on Instagram, LinkedIn, wherever. If you want one, just send us a screenshot of your five-star review. I'm sure we have some extras. Just send me an email, ryanagor2.com. I'll get out, um, give them away till we run out. But we don't have Ryan, Josh, and Nate Polar Plunge. We just have Nathan Phelps. So we'd had to get more. The budget doesn't have room for those stickers. They're like $15 or something. We don't have the budget for that. Listeners, I don't make a lot of money, and I want a Christmas present, and that Christmas <laughs> present is a wet Josh Shelton. Oh, well, in that case, yeah, I agree. Let's lower the bar. 210, Josh goes in the lake. <laughs> I agree. I, Nate, Nate, no, I, I, can, I can work Look, with you on that. We're, we're going backwards, and we're getting all flip-flop. <laughs> Look, the smart one is not going in the lake, all right? The, <laughs> oh, the, smart, the smart host, the oh, is Being the adult dry. in the room carries with it an extra responsibility, though, Lead Josh. by example. You have to be willing to... Lead to, by example. Exactly. Sacrifice for the good of the show. And... I contend that sacrificing for the good of the show in this particular instance means getting wet. I, I agree, leader. Yeah, oh, faithful leader. Oh, man of wisdom, you should do it. Um, we did have two reviews come in, Josh, best I can tell. One was interesting, and one was obviously genius. Um, good show from Chicho72. I love Sergio Chapa and Josh. It, Sergio, you know, if you want to be a host on the show, you're you're welcome to come on. When does the Chronicle start giving us money for the millions of dollars of revenue we send their way? Like, to the editors of the Chronicles, uh, to the Houston Chronicles, I know you guys are worried about random environmental d- catastrophes that you don't fully understand, but please quit doing that and send us a check. It would be more profit. We would send you so much business. Anyways, morons. Um, but we did have a... Morons was be the editors of the Chronicles, not our wonderful listeners. The we did have a great review, and it says great. Jimmy from Oklahoma, Ryan is a podcasting god. I'll read that again because I don't announce it. Wait, Josh, what did he say? Ryan is a podcasting god. Wow, and that makes me question his IQ. Ryan, <laughs> of all the listeners, he's got to be the smartest. I agree. Uh, he got. I thought. I thought maybe Speakner or something like that. But this this cat right here, he's tuned in. He's a listener. He's focused. You can tell he he knows what's going on. And so um, Jimmy from Oklahoma, it's, it's good to hear that um, that someone gets it. Speaking of Speakner, Josh, we did have a uh, Speakner, the Prophet of Doom update. And he mentions a few companies that he thinks are in trouble. Uh, Whitting Petroleum. Um, let's see here. Valeria. V-A-L-E-R. I, Valeria, I'm not, not, not for that company myself. Just Anyways, say confidently and people will believe you. Yeah, exactly. But he, he here's a quote from Speakner the Prophet of Doom. We investors are fed up. Market all-time highs and oil trading like it's inflicted with the black death of the 14th century. 
That's a shot across the bow there. I'm just going to say. Wow. Trump is, nar- is is too narcissistic to see his greatest asset, oil, is not only going to grow his employment he has touted, but will cause the revert uh, will be the cause of reversal just in time for his failed reelection. These nut job crazy leftists may actually stand a chance when Trump's booming economy withers and dies. I'm actually a big supporter of Trump, but his hard on for low oil has cost this diehard conservative vote. Either Trump destroys frackers or left does. Rather be destroyed by my enemy than my own party. Goodbye, Trump 2020. Truly yours forever and ever, Speaker. Okay, I had the last part. So Speaker is. It's hard to tell where he comes in on this issue. I'm not really sure. <laughs> He's very cagey. Yeah, yeah. Black Death. <laughs> he calls it the Black Death. So, uh, and we did have an article that we'll talk about later that came in um, from Speakner. Um, and a couple things more from Speakner throughout the show. But anyways, we had had a good Speakner, the Prophet of Doom update. But he is in his lair somewhere in Parts Unknown, basking in whatever it is he basks in, looking at markets and weeping at I guess he's he's weeping at all time highs. Is that I kind of, that's kind of what I got? Like he's mad about all time highs because he's not making money. I, I don't know. Anyways, anyway, so it was. Anyways, we have some more speaking stuff throughout the show. Well, you know, some uh, some articles came out. Uh, Sergio, uh, he was on last week. One of our Sergio, one, one of our favorite oh, wow. listeners uh, and and favorite co-host that that comes on the show to. <laughs> Uh, to, to do the job that Ryan struggles to sometimes. Wow. Uh, anyway, he <laughs> he has a he has an article that came out and uh, it talks about the ten most productive oil wells in Texas. Now, what I was surprised, Ryan, on this one was uh, Concho, who had the spacing issue earlier this year, has two wells in the top ten. Uh, so they've really seemed to have dialed it in, dialed it in. They have number two. And they have number 10. So um, two of these wells really hit great production numbers. For what it's worth, um, for the folks at the Chronicle, I don't know if it's my, mine or it's yours. It's mine, too. Okay, the, the, the formatting on this article is weird in Google Chrome on Mac. So might be an us thing, might be a you thing. I don't know, but it yeah. is kind of weird. Can't read the numbers. Can't read the numbers. But I, I can see the ranks. And I uh, just wanted to mention that because uh, that's been that's been an area of, of concern for, for Concho. Um, and it looks like they're looks like they've solved some some of the so, issues. Yeah, you got one, two, three. If I'm looking at it right, one, two, three um, wells are from Henry Resources, and that's a name I don't think we've ever said on this show. Henry Resources, yeah. Yeah, I don't think we've ever talked about them unless you're a subsidiary of something. I'm trying to look it up right now, but I don't think that's a name we've ever actually mentioned on the show. Is that name? So that's something that um, we'll have to. Do a little research into and, and find out more about those guys, but uh, kudos to them because um, they killed it. Number yeah, one, yeah. four, and nine. Yeah. So uh, congratulations to Henry Resources for that and those. Anyways, but you know that kind of stuck out to me as well. It's like, hey, I don't know. So I have to. It's one of those companies. I guess they're not publicly traded, or if they are, they don't make a lot. Of, they kind of do things uh, quietly, I suppose, because. Uh, we surely we. I, I, I don't think we have. I don't think I we have ever never talk, seen talked about it on the show. So. Um, anyways, so that was fascinating. But yeah, it's the text on that article. Sergio does appear, at least at the time of this, to be uh, to be a little wonky. Now, one, one quite little insider tip here, Josh. You know, Sergio does the the drill down thing, and he does this. And if you notice, the source is is uh, well, I call them drilling info, but they're uh, Enveros or Enveros or yeah. whatever they are. 
So, I, I mean, we I think we should probably ask Sergio if this is like a, uh, like, is he splitting loyalties here between us and Drilling Info? I mean, because so, if he's getting so it for the Railroad Commission, it's free. It's, you know, but, but I mean, I, I bet uh, Drilling Info would give him all the free love and publicity that we give him. I'm just, just saying. Just saying. So... Well, maybe he's using the Inveris to to bring us uh, some content so we can continue making him millions. <laughs> uh, we have another article from uh, from Heart Energy. Mexico's Pemex announces discovery of giant crude oil deposit. So uh, we used to cover a lot of these uh, Mexico stories. This one came out on December 6th. Discovered a deposit in southeastern Mexico that could yield 500 million barrels of crude, calling it the largest such finding in more than 30 years. So my my curiosity in this is is how this is going to play with uh, Texas, New Mexico, and Mexico relations. When um, Texas was at some one point providing, exporting, transporting oil, natural gas to Mexico, something like this could uh, could one, uh, help them become more independent, or two, uh, give opportunity for some of these U.S.-based companies to come in and assist. Now, as we talk, the issues with the prior president has, has made certain companies a little leery to invest too much time and money. Current in. president. Um, yeah, so just it's just a curious article, and, uh, and really I'm eager to see what, what happens with uh, U.S. and Mexico over the next year or two. Yeah, Pemex is so poorly ran that it's hard to understand, like you're saying, what the significance of, the, of this will be. And then Obrador's um, rollback of the energy reforms that we saw in Mexico, which we were very, we were very excited about the um, energy reforms and sad to see them go. We'll be interested to see how this pull, um, you know, plays out. And I'm looking on the map here. If I understand correctly, this is all the way down in uh, Tabasco. T-A-B-A-S-C-O. Tabasco State. Tabasco yep. State, which is all yeah, borders Guatemala. Um, and so it's way, way down there. Um, so anyways, yeah, I, I don't know. You know, PMX is so poorly ran. It, you know, when you hear about this, it's like, okay, will they actually be able to maximize uh, this many barrels? Um, obviously, there's there's going to be some independent auditing that needs, needs to be done about these. But just a final thing I'll say is that we talked about um, old discoveries and you know, big, big discoveries being found. And so it's like, okay, well, you know, um, here's 30 years of, of uh, production potentially in Mexico that was, that was found and be interesting to track it to see where it goes. But yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe Sergio or someone will have some insight on where they're at on maybe rolling back the rollback to the energy reform. But right now it is not, uh, it doesn't last I heard at least it wasn't in a good spot for us companies to go down there and, and work. Remember the article we talked about a few months ago about they were arguing over someone had some offshore assets and the, they were arguing with Mexico. Or I say arguing. There was litigation over who actually could claim them, even though the American – I think it was the American company had went down there and, and bought the rights to them for yeah. offshore drilling. So. But they were taking those rights back and giving it possibly to a – Yeah, that was, that was at least what was being considered for sure, which is not, uh, not something you want if you're in the business of putting out money for production. There is a uh, there's an article uh, Sergio released uh, again that you were talking about a little bit this morning. A basic energy service delisted from New York Stock Exchange. So, uh, so I, I take it, Ryan, that you were curious as how this was going to relate to Chesapeake being delisted. As yeah, well. yeah. So that's right. So if you remember, I think my time gets all kind of wonky being out of town so much. But Chesapeake has been, if I remember correctly, they've been below the dollar mark. 
um, for more than 30 days. And so I asked Beekner, the prophet of doom, why haven't they been delisted? And, um, and here's what he said, just to be clear. He said, under a dollar for 30 days, then they go on, basically put on notice, uh, a, pro- a probation of sorts. They have six months to get their price back up to an average trading price above a dollar. If not, then it gets delisted. And then he goes on to some some, uh, some things you might see them do, um, which means that I, I'm curious. I saw this basic one, and I kind of bumped around. I haven't seen anything about Chesapeake. So maybe they flashed above a dollar, which I haven't – and that's kind of the, the thing. I'm not really sure if it flashes above a dollar for half a second. Does that, does that count? I haven't seen anything to indicate that, that that's happened. But that might be a news story you hear before the end of the year is that, that you know, Chesapeake gets noticed that they're going to be delisted, which would be probably one of the, I don't know about surprising stories, but if you just go back a decade to think about them and the fact that they could be potentially delisted from the stock exchange, um, that's just, it's hard to believe as someone who worked for those guys, you know, many, many moons ago. Um, I mean, I'm looking back now, their stock, so their stock five years ago was at, 20 something dollars it looks like if you go back 10 years ago i think it would be 10 years ago let me pull it up here real quick so we're in 2019 so 2009 it had dropped but if you go back to 2008 okay so 11 years ago you know you're looking at you know 60 something dollars it's trading at 60 something dollars so to think that in this 11 years it could be potentially delisted this shows you how fast <laughs> fast things could change and you know it bumped above 30 once in there and but yeah it's so anyways, so I'd be curious to see what happens with that. But that is a story that gets a lot of traction, um, and, I, and I don't know if – I know people have kind of – they kind of hear about Chesapeake, and I kind of make the joke, compare them to uh, to Jason. You know, they're not dead until they actually get you know, the head cut off and actually separated from the body, and the head's over here, and the body's over there. And uh, But this might be the end of them at least being publicly traded unless they can kind of pull out the, the Hail Mary, if you will. And then basic, obviously, is uh, – is not not exactly the news that they wanted to hear um and probably won't be chesapeake and basic probably won't be the last time we hear about these either well it's curious you know uh i saw i didn't pull this up i I just now thought about it but on uh i may have mentioned this last week comstocks uh was looking at some of the chesapeake um resources to possibly go in and purchase so that would be one thing to keep an eye on there was a uh, there was a UN summit uh, where they were dealing with some of the climate issues, and a couple of things happened in succession to one another. And there's a, a, a interesting article at the Guardian that I wanted to mention. So they had this summit, and then there was a law they passed about the anti-protest for pipelines, um, really anything dealing with oil and gas. There were certain parameters uh, that were I guess ratcheted up a little bit as far as severity on what would happen to these protesters if they got um, into specific situations. Well, two of them, I believe, let's see, two of them in Greenpeace uh, were dangling off a bridge over the Houston Ship Channel, and they became the first people charged under the new law. It was two dozen, two dozen, not two, two dozen. So it's 24 people. They were, they were the first people charged under this new law, which allows for prison sentences and of like 10 years and 500000 for, for protest groups. So it makes me wonder if, if this is going to give certain optics for the industry. Is this going to be a thing where we're going to successfully uh, push protests away from these dangerous zones, or is this going to bring more protesters? I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that, Ron? 
Yeah, and so uh, we'll link to the article that Josh is referring to in the show notes. And then also, if you go in there, it uh, it mentions, um, there's a hyperlink. He says, that's uh, in red, became the first people charged. You go to that, that's kind of where I'm at right now. And one of the things that's interesting is, so when, when this law was being talked about, we asked, why can't you discharge them under trespassing laws now? Like, that seems to be simple. Now, I don't know if trespassing is considered dangling yourself from a bridge, but I would assume... I would assume that, 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 that that's the case. Um, and here, now here's the problem. Um, and, and we said that you know, you know, uh, trespassing is a, is a crime, and we're not making excuses for that. The things that we were concerned about would be kind of you know, fringe things that they, they use this law to enforce. On the flip side, though, Josh, it's, it's really weird because this is the attorney for Greenpeace. Um, and Nicole DeBoard, Debord, uh, this arrest didn't have to happen, she said. The protest was scheduled to end at a certain time, and if law enforcement had just let the protesters be, they'd have ultimately just ended the protest and everyone would have walked away. Now, which is really an astonishing thing to say. You have people hanging from a bridge. <laughs> I mean, like, it wasn't like they were walking on the, like, I got, like, let's assume the bridge has a sidewalk, which I don't know if it does or not. Let's assume it has a sidewalk, and they're walking up and down with the sign, and they throw them up, you know. They were dangling themselves from the bridge. So, I mean, it's really hard to be sympathetic to anything here, because what, what do you want them to do? Now, if I understand correctly, it does say, did it say that the, um, it shuts down part of the, it shuts down parts of the port, Right. Okay, so this is so this is where you know trying to be fair. You go, okay, if the ships have the legal right to come up through the port, and you are stopping them, then you should. The law about all this new law shouldn't really be relevant. There's a sense in which you could argue that the protesters should be late, should be uh, held responsible for damages to these companies. Like that, to me, would be the more appropriate thing. Like, okay, if you want to protest, that's fine. But if if they're conducting proper business, they're not violating the law, and you you're costing them money, then the damages should be paid out. I mean, that's, the prison time is kind of irrelevant. The damages is what's actually the more appropriate thing. So um, it will be the first time, but it's, it's, it's really kind of a unique case because, I, I mean, do you think they should just let them hang there all day? And then, I, I, don't, even, I don't even know how you could like, think that's proper. Yeah, I don't, I don't understand that. And it seems to me that, I mean, that the activities, I mean, would that would that classify as trespassing though? I mean, would that have been sufficient to? I mean, and, and, and I'm kind of halfway joking here, but you gotta be you gotta think through this. Some they're lucky that like the FBI didn't charge them with some kind of terrorist deal. They're under a bridge. They're hanging from a rope. Obviously, they probably could have reduced the charges later, but they could have probably really brought some wonky charges on them because of the way they're protesting. Um, so the new law might be the savior, but but again, I mean, um, a serious question: Should the punishment here be more to do with loss uh, with the damages for loss of profit because you're blocking the channel? Um, that that to me would be the thing. And the final thing I say is: What if one of these people fell and died? Do you think the family of the of the bridge owner, uh, the city or the port or whoever it is, would sue them? Or if a ship hits the person? So, so it has. I think trespassing is an easy case here. The new law, but anyways, there's a lot of stuff that goes into this. It's like, well, I don't. I mean, okay, if you want to protest, then you have a right to protest. It seems to be clear, but where you protest is not. That's not up for debate. You know, you can't come into my kitchen and protest me cooking a steak. That's not. That's not doable. Yeah. So it. I mean, what's what's really going to be interesting is is, is how. 
how all of these things in the public perception uh, is going to, to play into how oil and gas is viewed. I think Texas seems to be relatively safe. There was an article I have, I may have put it in here, about um, Colorado, possibly New Mexico, and, and how some of these things are going to play into to that, that perception. But the, you know, some of the numbers they put here was um, fossil fuels needs to be reduced by 40%, and right now the United States is upping their production and their um, – See, it says oil and gas is forecast to rise by 25% over the next decade. So uh, this, this article really paints a, a dismal picture and says the United States is being irresponsible with fossil fuels in the way that we're growing faster than any, probably any other country in the world right now uh, with our production of fossil fuels. And, and so this is using the opportunity of some of these protests to paint a narrative, uh, paint a picture, um, so it's definitely going to be interesting, interesting to watch. I think it's pretty clear-cut, though, that what they're doing seems to be unreasonable and dropping the guys over the bridge and dangling them out there so that the ships can't pass. And I think that's what they're doing, right? They're hanging on something. Yeah, like they got a rope, it looks like, for the picture. That's, yep. I mean, that's, and the ships can't, the ships can't, can't get that's in. What I'm that's what I'm saying. Like, that should be law. You should be, the, the company should be able to sue them for damages. Yep. However many, however, what the, whatever the delay in time yeah, is. Yeah, whatever that is, because you could, you could monetize that in some way. Um, and so, yeah, that, pro-protest, even if we disagree with what you're protesting for, but you can't protest anywhere you want. You cannot come to my house and protest as a vegan that, you, that, I don't, that you're mad I'm cooking a steak. You just don't have that, you don't have that right, uh, thankfully, or you'd be, mad, you'd be at my house quite often. Hmm. Well, uh, there was a, another article that came out. Uh, Williams sues Texas regulators over natural gas flaring practices. We talked a little bit about this article with uh, Exco about was it last week? I think last week. Uh, no, it's, I think this is back in. Uh, when this back in? Maybe I get my cases mixed up. When this back back in August when they ruled on the Exco deal? Mm, seems like it was. Seems like there was uh, something we talked about. Maybe, maybe. Anyways, go ahead. Sorry, sorry, anyway, sorry. So the lawsuit was filed in late November in the 345 Civil District. Um, Exco has permission to burn gas produced by the 130 wells and 69 flare points in the Briscoe Ranch. Um, and uh, what it seems is that Williams um, filed a proof of claim asserting that the producer inappropriately flared gas obligated to the gas gathering system. So, um, so Williams's point here is that there was gas that Williams was promised that they didn't receive because they flared it, right? So uh, yes, yeah, in- interesting article here, and, and and you might see some more of this with the you know flaring and the cost of natural gas being pretty low. Um, you know how how these companies are going to deal with this, especially you know meeting their contract demands and uh, the cost that that could entail. Yeah. So this was the this is from oh so this is going back to it looks like I'm just kind of skipping this article here. This may have started back in 2017, if I'm yeah in 2017, Exco. Asked the Royal Commission for permission to burn off excess gas from dozens uh, do- dozens of wells, and later asked for a two-year extension of that authority, and that was granted in August by a two-to-one vote. Now, that's what we talked about in August. So Williams is coming back and saying, "Hey, um, you know," and so yeah, I- I'd be curious to see what what the what the terms of the the contract were. Like, why does 
you know, it's funny, you, you've got to, we always talk about, you know, they can't get the pipe, they can't get the gas to the pipe, and you know, no one wants it and all this stuff. And here's William saying they want it. So I'm curious what the, what some of the, the con- contractual things are. Maybe there is, uh, maybe there is some kind of contractual um, agreement, but the article seems to say that there isn't necessarily an agreement with Exco and William. So it's kind of interesting from, from that perspective to understand, um, what was going on? But it, you know, here's a piece. It says the former Chesapeake whales were connected to Williams, to the Williams Galactic system. But Exco argued that it would lose money if they were forced to pipe the gas to the system under the terms of the transportation contract. Since 2016, Exco has been using t- temporary permission from the Railroad Commission to burn off gas wells. So Exco is arguing that they would um, do it, but but earlier the article states that they don't actually have an agreement. So I'm not I'm not sure. Um, what the the basis of the case is, I will say that there is a, this this idea of not being able to flare off natural gas is catching a lot of steam. I'm seeing a lot of people talk about producers shouldn't be able to do this, and it's such a waste, and you know all all these other arguments. So you you know, regardless of what happens with this case, um, it's going to be interesting to see moving forward. I, mean, I think it was Pioneer though they came out and kind of criticize folks for for flaring off natural gas and so it's something that's catching steam and you'll be interested to see as we progress um how this is viewed from a public perception because two or three years ago no one even thought about it now the past you know six to 12 months it feels like everyone's kind of keened in on this idea and um you know kind of going hey why why are we doing this and i think it's a fair question to ask i don't know uh, the economics if it's if it's um economically feasible to to always put it in the pipeline or you know what your options are at that point well there's a, a little comment here where it says in the lawsuit williams and mockingbird said the rc has set a dangerous precedent with the extended approval for exco which reflects an evolved practice at the commission under which it has not denied any of the more than twenty-seven thousand requests for flaring permits received in the past seven years uh and they 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 go on to mention uh, the adopted statewide Rule 32 to regulate flaring, but in practice, for some years, the commission has effectively disregarded its rule in the granting of flaring exceptions. Uh, so, yeah, that that's um, it's definitely something that's taken uh, taken center stage with the, the these companies preparing for you know the next year or two. So. Right. Well, I mean, th- but this is what's confusing for me. Is says, Exco in 2013 bought a package of Eagleford Wells from Chesapeake Corp. And tw- in early 2018, Exco filed for Chapter 11 protection. Williams has a, had a ga- Williams had a gathering contract with Chesapeake, which terminated in 2017. Exco and Williams have yet to reach a gathering agreement. And it kind of goes on to explain why you know that might be um, relevant. But it, but it, when you hear that, when you hear that, you go, I don't know what the what the case is being made here. So it'd be interesting to watch as. Uh, as this progresses all right today we have our guest trent jacobs he's the jpt digital editor trent great to have you back on the show buddy hey it's good to be back so trent we're talking here offline it's been a while i think since we had you on uh, six eight months maybe um uh and you were kind of telling us offline that i think well, we've had you on probably about two years ago originally, and you were kind of talking about technology, AI, big te- uh, big data, all that kind of stuff. But the past, what, six, eight months, you've been focusing on frack hits and things like that. So kind of walk us through maybe the evolution of your thinking or maybe some things that last time you, you thought may be true, that you verified, or that, they're, that, they've, uh, that they've been proven wrong um, since you know the early part of this year. 
Okay. Well, uh, I remember the first time we talked about this, one of the things you asked me was, you know, how would this play into the rig count? And now that we're two years, uh, you know, into this, I, I think you can look at the rig count and talk about how parent-child effects, you know, i.e. frac kits, um, have lowered, have had a direct impact on the rig count. Um, so what we've learned is that uh, um, not all frac kits are bad, but uh, the, where they are bad, uh, you're starting to see a lot of operators. You're starting to see a lot of operators uh, open up with their investors in the earnings calls and actually talk about the detrimental effects uh, that it has on production. So that's one interesting thing where I think the investment community is caught on, even though the topic's been swirling around in technical circles for years. Um, and then I think with the with other uh, the other interesting point here is that uh, you know a lot of operators have caught on to the fact that that you can monitor frac hits, you can watch them happen. Uh, this was not something that was prioritized just two or three years ago, but today it is a priority. So uh, where, wherever you see a big systemic problem or issue, you, you definitely see in the oil field a new line of uh, businesses come out, you know, especially from the uh, oil field services group. And so it's actually become a really um, hot topic. <clears throat> and, uh, and uh, and you're starting to see a lot of a lot of new technologies come out uh, to try to help operators, and then some operators are just trying to figure out for themselves. So there's a lot of a lot of moving parts still happening. Uh, the problem is far from solved. Okay, now let me go back to something you said and make sure I got this phrasing right before I ask the question. You said that that not all frac hits are bad. Is that is that how you phrased it correctly? Did I get that correct? Yeah, we, we use frac hits as a, as a monolithic term. Right. Uh, some of the technical community actually want to call them fracture-driven interactions mm-hmm. just to remove the negative connotation mm-hmm. uh, that, that seems to always come with frac hits. But yes, in, in certain cases, there have been reports. You can go through the technical literature and find case studies where a frac hit actually improved production. Okay. So my question, and this is going to be kind of the, the dumb question here. I'm not a technical guy. You know this far better than I do. Um, is there is there any you said that there's some t- that there's been cases where it's improved production was that strategic or was that luck or do we do we know why most of them are bad maybe but some of them are good um, is there any do we have any insight on why that um, some of them might be better than others if you will so it, it looks like geology really plays a role here so depending on which side of the eagle fur you might be on uh, then you 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 might see different results from frack hits. Same goes for the Bakken, same goes for the Permian. Um, where, but where they are beneficial, I would hesitate to say that these are strategically you know, done or carried out for this purpose. Uh, the, the, the other way to look at it is if they're not bad, you don't have to worry about them as much. So there's, there's cases um, in the Permian where people have learned, well, I take the frack hit, but all I get is water. I don't get sand in my parent well bore. Uh, that cost about two hundred to four hundred thousand dollars to clean out in most cases. So all I get is water, and that means for two weeks or a week maybe I, I pump out water and then I go back to oil. So so in that case, um, that frac hit, knowing that it wasn't necessarily that bad to your UR, that allows you to keep pumping at the rate that you want to. So you get to frac the uh, the new wells the way you want without suffering big negative consequences. So in a way, you could actually look at that where they're benign and say they're good because they let me do what I want. Uh, but but again, I would stress that in most cases, people aren't trying to have frac hits. Right. 
uh, trying to, you know, reactivate something. It's, you know, in the early days, it was pretty much dumb luck that you would get increased production from a frack kit. Sure. And one of the, the other themes that I'm curious if this ties into some of the research you've been doing is we've been we've been chasing the show. And I think it was David Blackman who first threw this out there. Uh, he he said something to the effect of that when you're dealing with um, you know fracking, horizontal drilling, it's different than conventional. And what he meant was, or what he went on to say at least was, that the skill of the team is far more important um, when you talk about fracking wells compared to conventional wells. Um, have you seen, have you examined that thesis and does that tie into the frack hits? Are you finding maybe the more skilled producers, if you will, have uh, less frack hits compared to producers who don't have much skill or talent, background, um, or however you want to phrase that? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. I, I, I think that uh, the, the companies who have been uh, focusing a lot of energy on frack hits and, and sort of just researching what they are, how they how they happen, what, what can be done about them. Those, those folks are clearly leading the discussion in the industry. And uh, so there is sort of a haves and have nots in terms of uh, knowledge, the knowledge base that you're working with here. And uh, one, one way to look at this is that a lot of companies didn't even record instances of frack hits. And uh, that, that went on for years. And then you look at other companies um, who did, Devin really stands out in this regard. They've recorded thousands of frack hits. They have a library of these things. So, so you know, small and mid-cap guys, those, those are the ones who are actually just now building those libraries. And there's a big data problem out in the patch with completions data. So a lot of people are starting from scratch. And, uh, but the people who have been studying this for years versus just just one year, they, they really are coming up with interesting solutions. Um, I say right now, most of it centers around diagnostics. Can I just see the frack hit? Can I see it form? Do I know how much water and sand it took for the frack hit to occur? And maybe I can pull back. Maybe I can do something to change that and just get these this, this Goldilocks zone. Um, so in other words, some people are, are moving towards controlling fractures, and this has to happen in real time. Um, there's actually a debate. Can we pre-plan? Can we pre-plan all this, or do we have to watch the frack hits in real time, where the fractures are going, and then make changes either during the stage or after the stage? So that's that's one little debate happening um, in the field. And but the amount of literature that's coming out is really helping. Like I said, those small and mid-cap guys come along. There's there's a lot of information that they can uh, use to catch up. You know, it's interesting. I think it was you. We talked about maybe this idea of kind of having like a, a Netflix or a library of of, um, of of insider information where companies could share this stuff um, with each other. But kind of what you're saying, it sounds like is, at least is, is that everyone hasn't kept the records equally or at least to a minimum standard. So even if you did have a widespread agreement that they're going to share information, um, some companies would substantially benefit from others because they haven't documented um, uh, on, on, on like a percentage basis enough to really um, add to the conversation. I think that's always true with uh, any aspect of the oil and gas industry. There's people who have a lot to give back and there's people who have less. Um, but I think that where a lot of this is coming out of is the uh, the conference circuit. So the SBE, you know, we provide these forums. We also provide one Petro, which is the database for the technical information. And I actually go in on there and, and just check our database and see how often these frack hit papers are being downloaded. Um, and obviously the stories that we write at JPT, how often those are being downloaded. And there's a lot of information gathering happening on this, this topic. 
But what's interesting is that you are actually seeing smaller producers with small teams come out with some really compelling research. And it may be something that somebody bigger figured out one or two years ago, but now it's in the public domain. So, so again, the, the knowledge sharing is working. Um, it's working on, on across the spectrum. And uh, when you go to one of the top frack hit papers, if you will, at a conference, there might be 250 or 300 people in the room. It's, it's often standing room only for, for some of these really key essential papers. You know, one of the things you mentioned either in your prep email you sent to us or earlier, I can't remember now, um, was that the, the, the CEOs of the publicly traded companies are having to talk about this more often. Um, I've always, I've often kind of joked about the analysts um, from Wall Street who get on there and ask questions and, you know, they, they understand the industry from a certain perspective, but there's a lot of things that just because they haven't worked in the industry, they don't really have a good grasp on. Um, as these things become, you know, maybe more relevant to what the analysts are asking, do you, how, how much do you do you think that's going to impact what we're seeing, the messaging from these publicly traded companies? Is it going to consume more of their time, or are they going to try to minimize maybe talking about it because they haven't quite figured it out? Well, I, I think it's all of the above. I think that certain people don't particularly love being asked about it, but one, one thing you'll notice is if you read the transcripts of these earnings calls is that you know people will often refer to, well, we've put our frack hit mitigation uh uh, procedure into place. I always kind of scratch my head because it's really vague. Um, <laughs> what does that there mean, are right? different ways to do this. But when I, when I first read that two years ago, uh, maybe even a little bit before that, I would, I would be like, well, what are they talking about? Because, you know, the, the industry really, the, the shale sector as a whole hasn't really figured this out. There are really no good solutions being put forth. Now things are a little bit different. I think when you look at people who are doing the cube, um, you have to understand that, that by and large, that's a frack hit mitigation practice. They're trying to preserve the virgin press, uh, pressure in the reservoir and avoid depletion. Depletion is the root cause of frack hits. You're, you're sucking new fractures into depleted zones. Um, and then we see people on the smaller spectrum doing things like what's called preloading. I might put 10,000, 20,000 barrels into older well bores. Um, and then frack, and that that water pressures up the reservoir, kind of like replaces some of the oil you took out. And uh, so, so you're starting to see people as as they get these case studies and these results under their belt, um, they they are talking more about them from the executive level. But this is all still very early days. Uh, no one has quite solved this this issue, um, and I think that investors are very cautious. Uh, because this gets down to spacing and well inventory and you know ultimate recoveries and, and net present value. This really changes the equation on all of those things. And certainty, with so much uncertainty, you know, people are just being very cautious with what they're saying. Okay. Yep. So, final question for this on you is price. I think I just is at fifty nine a barrel WTI right now. If price lifts up into the mid seventies and it stays mid seventies for uh, a long period of time, we'll say a year, year and a half. Um, is this something that you think that investors will begin to hear less about because companies can, uh, you know, push towards you know making money or other topics? Or is this something that we're going to be hearing about uh, regardless of what the price does, assuming it doesn't go to something crazy like $300 a barrel? But is this going to be any dominating the news um, like it has for 2020 as well? I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that the parent-child, the frack hit topic, this is going to define the future of the shale sector. 
Um, this really does get down to how many holes you can put in the ground um, feasibly and affordably. So no, I, I don't think that if you get up if you get up to sixty or seventy that this topic goes away because the physics will still be there and people will still be trying to figure out how many how, how tight can I place these wells together and. We're probably in the third inning, maybe the fourth inning of solving or understanding this problem, uh, 100%. Okay, so we got a, we got a ways to go, and uh, price will not impact it. We, we've got him, we've, we're recording, right? We got him on the record, so. We've got him on the record. I think price will, uh, you know, maybe make the, the pain of a frack hit a little less severe. Right. But... If you're coming, if you're still, your, your new wells come in at 75% of what your original uh, well on the uh, on the DSU did, that's still a fundamental issue. Um, and I think what's happening, this isn't my term, but, but a lot of people are starting to say this, especially the Wall Street guys, this is a recalibration moment for the entire sector. No longer, your slide decks from 2015, 2016, and 2017 no longer apply to the reality that's happening to subsurface today. Yeah, I guess, and I, I hear that a lot. I guess it just depends because, you know, if the price jumps to sixty-two, you know, it sits at sixty-two next year, then then I'm I'm all on board with what you're saying. Um, if we had a a higher jump, which I'm not saying it will, but if it jumps to eighty-five and it sits eighty-five for a long period of time, I'm not sure I'm willing to buy in that Wall Street is committed as they're saying right now. So, um, I, I need, I guess. <laughs> Wall Street's looking at the producer saying, hey, you guys need to prove yourself to me. I'm looking at Wall Street saying, let me get some high prices before I believe that you guys aren't going to start funneling money back this way as well. So <laughs> I'm not sure I'm quite buying into to their messaging because it's easy to kind of uh, put the pressure on folks when the prices are low. But I'm curious if we hit a, a mid to high 80 price for a, you know, a long period of time. I don't think we will, but if Wall Street would, uh, would back off on some of that rhetoric. But obviously... That's uh, probably not going to happen, so we won't know. But listen, since you've came on last time, I think you now, you or uh, the folks over at the JPT have a podcast going on, or what all you guys got going on there that we need to plug and promote? Yeah, we are the competition now, so watch out for us. Um, hmm. We're doing, uh, we're, we're trying to do a weekly podcast, uh, sort of different formats. The SBE, you know, has a lot of different tentacles. JPT is just one of those, so we're we're uh, doing uh, episodes about, you know, what it's like to be a member. The SBE president has a, uh, a monthly podcast episode. And then we're also getting into these really nitty gritty technical topics, you know, that we think are important for everybody to know about. So, uh, so yeah, you know, Google us, look us up on iTunes. We're there. And what's the show called? Uh, right now, it's, we, we are called the SPE Podcast. Okay, SPE Podcast. So, you know, very literal. You can't miss us. We'll, we'll link to that in the show notes. And, you know, we were joking earlier that we keep the Houston Chronicle alive with, you know, Sergio Chapa sending him all this traffic. So we'll, you know, we'll send over, I think we got three listeners, so we'll send one of them over to you guys. And so, uh, you know, you can have one-third of our listenership. Yeah. How about that? Okay, great. And tell your <laughs> listener, you know, follow me on LinkedIn, too. We're, you know, we're, we're having a lot of good dialogue about the uh, stories, the reports that we put together. So, You'll find uh, you'll find me there, and you'll find the podcast episodes there as well. Okay, well, Trent, it was good to have you on before the year closes out. We'll link to all your stuff in the show notes. Thank you, sir, for coming on, and we'll talk to you next time. Hey, thank you. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks again to Trent Jacobs for coming on the show today. It was great uh, digging into some of his insights into the industry. 
Ryan, to wrap things up, uh, the Texas Roundup, we have a couple of things I wanted to hit. The first thing was China is set to launch a $105 billion oil and gas pipeline firm. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Russia-China deal that was made. So this is uh, a reference specifically to a, uh, a pipeline firm that, uh, that China is looking to start operating. So uh, China's making some moves. I'm curious to see if that firm is going to be active in the U.S. Are they trying to do anything over here with, uh, with pipelines? So um, I'm sure there's some ways that that could apply to our industry, but uh, something to keep an eye on. Ryan, I know you're, uh, you're following China stuff pretty pretty avidly so something something to keep keep an eye on there yeah it's been yeah i don't I, I this is a story that's i had to go back i'm kind of looking at the skipping through here but um yeah i'm curious um so this is going to happen today i suppose right so uh hmm i'm interested to see what's going on i've heard of some other chinese stuff i'm not sure exactly I'm familiar with this one so well, another article, Kinder Morgan plans to spend $2.4 billion on expansion projects in 2020. Uh, so that's, uh, that's a sizable investment they're making. And last but not least, average apartment rent in Midland is down $70 since June. So uh, this is something uh, a key market always keep an eye on in the Midland area. And uh, says it's down by more than $70. So that's, uh, that's pretty, pretty significant. Yep. And final thing is, Josh, we have some holiday shirts, Christmas shirts coming out beyond LinkedIn. We did not get any printed out, so they're print on demand, so we cannot control anything other than put them up there. Hope you folks like them. If you've been on my LinkedIn, you've seen some of the designs. So they will be hopefully up on LinkedIn by the time you hear this recording, and if you want that. Also, the Nathan Phelps Polar Plunge shirts will be up there, and a sticker if you want a sticker. First come, first serve. For those of you who have sent in your, your review, with the photos, I have you down. But anyone else needs to send in yeah, me an email, right at gore2.com, and I will get you a sticker for your hard hat, laptop, whatever out there. Josh, it is good to be back. Just a few shows remaining in 2020. Listeners, thank you so much. Hope you had a – it wasn't Thanksgiving last week, was it? Week before last. Week before yeah. last. Wow. Okay. Hope two weeks ago you had a great Thanksgiving. <laughs> what was last week? Wasn't there something last week? Last week was the week after Thanksgiving. Yeah. Let's call it recovery week. Yeah, hope you, you, had, you had, had a good, good recovery week. <laughs> hope you had a good recovery week. And shout out to our boy, uh, Will. Uh, Will uh, works with the Star Square Global, been on the show before. He had his 17th baby last week, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> what <laughs> a, little, a stud. Little little sable grace. And so uh, congratulations to Will. Thank you so much for tuning in. And until next time, keep climbing.